Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. But Christmas Sunday is, uh, is a Sunday like none other. There's, there's kind of this other pole, let's say, in the Christian calendar as we get on toward Easter, uh, Good Friday and Easter. There's this celebration that happens in the church, but it's, it's a strange kind of celebration because at the same time that we are saying it's a good thing what God has done for us, as we come up to Easter, we're also experiencing a great deal of sadness and sometimes some guilt and shame because we understand that that story uh, doesn't end but features the death of Jesus. So we don't quite know how to feel about that holiday, Good Friday, Easter, except on the backside of it we go, we got past the Good Friday part and hooray for the resurrection. But we know how to do Christmas. We know how to do Christmas because it's all about joy. It's just the most incredible thing. It's either this ludicrous lie that people have made up, or it is the thing most to be celebrated in all of human history that God, who could have just walked away from this world and went, what a disaster, no thank you, said, "Mm, that's where I'm going and I'm going to be with my people. And so in the middle of this Christmas story that unfolds on the, in the pages of Scripture from, oh, a prophet 700 years before Jesus was born up to the, the day of the birth of Jesus, in the unfolding of this story that one of those prophets uses this word. He, he says, you know, this baby's going to have a name. And, and those of you who know the Christmas story are going, yeah, Jesus, right? But the prophet said, no, the The name, and maybe it's his nickname, is Emmanuel, which means God's with us. The best news you ever heard, the best news you ever will hear, God's with us. And so we know how to do Christmas, because when that miraculous turn of events finally took place, God was with us. I want to read to you the story. It's a um, a, a rendition of the story, admittedly. You've, you've probably heard the, the Christmas story read from the Bible many times. But I'm going to read it to you from um, not a translation, not a literal translation of the Bible, but from what we call a paraphrase. That is, a person who studied the Scripture, including the original languages from which they were translated into English, and said, um, how about something less mechanical and a little bit more like we regular people speak? So I want to read to you this morning the Christmas story, and then we'll we'll talk a little bit after that. Hear the word of the Lord. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to the Galilean village of Nazareth to a virgin engaged to be married to a man descended from David. His name was Joseph, and the virgin's name, Mary. Upon entering, Gabriel greeted her. Good morning, You're beautiful with God's beauty, beautiful inside and out. God is with you. She was thoroughly shaken, wondering what was behind a greeting like that. But the angel assured her, Mary, you have nothing to fear. God has a surprise for you. You'll become pregnant and give birth to a son and call his name Jesus. This naming thing, they've got to get straightened out in Scripture, don't they? He'll be great. He'll be called the son of the highest. There's another name. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He'll rule Jacob's house forever. No end ever to his kingdom. Mary said to the angel, but how? I've never been with a man. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest hover over you. Therefore, the child you bring to birth will be called holy and son of God. And did you know that your cousin Elizabeth conceived a son, old as she is? Everyone called her barren, and here she is six months pregnant. Nothing, you see, is impossible with God. And Mary said, yes, I see it all now. I'm the Lord's maid, ready to serve. Let it be with me just as you say. Maybe I should just stop there and make that the Christmas sermon. That our every response to God is, let it be with me as you say. Hmm. Then the angel left her. Mary didn't waste a minute. 
She got up and traveled to a town in Judah in the hill country, straight to Zechariah's house, and greeted her cousin Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby in her womb leaped. She was filled with the Holy Spirit and sang out exuberantly, You're so blessed among women, and the babe in your womb also blessed. And why am I so blessed that the mother of my Lord visits me? The moment the sound of your greeting entered my ears, the babe in my womb skipped like a lamb for sheer joy. Blessed woman, who believed what God said, believed every word would come true. Mary said, I'm bursting, bursting with God news. I'm dancing the song of my Savior God. God took one good look at me, and look what happened. I'm the most fortunate woman on earth. What God has done for me will never be forgotten. The God whose very name is holy, set apart from all others. His mercy flows in wave after wave on those who are in awe before him. He bared his arm and showed his strength, scattering the bluffing braggarts. He knocked tyrants off their high horses, pulled victims out of the mud. The starving poor sat down to a banquet, and the callous rich were left out in the cold. He embraced his chosen child, Israel. He remembered and piled on the mercies, piled them high. It's exactly what he promised, beginning with Abraham and right up to now. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for three months and then went back to her own home. few months later, Caesar Augustus ordered a census to be taken throughout the empire. This was the first census when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone had to travel to his own ancestral hometown to be accounted for, so Joseph went from the Galilean town of Nazareth up to Bethlehem in Judah, David's town, for the census. As a descendant of David, he had to go there. He went with Mary, his fiancée, who was pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to a son, her firstborn. She wrapped him in a blanket, laid him in a manger, because there was no room in the hostel. There were sheep herders camping in the neighborhood. They had set night watches over their sheep. Suddenly, God's angel stood among them, and God's glory blazed around them. They were terrified. And the angel said, don't be afraid. I'm here to announce a great and joyful event that is meant for everybody worldwide. A Savior's just been born in David's town. A Savior who is Messiah and Master. And this is what you're to look for. A baby wrapped in a blanket, lying in a manger. At once, the angel was joined by a huge angelic choir singing God's praises. Glory to God in the highest heavens. Peace to all men and women on earth who please him. And as the angel choir withdrew into heaven, the sheep herders talked it over. Let's go over to Bethlehem as fast as we can and see for ourselves what God has revealed to us. So they left, running, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. Seeing was believing. They told everyone they met what the angels had said about this child, and all who heard the sheep herders were impressed. Mary kept all these things to herself, holding them dear and deep within her heart. The sheep herders returned and let loose, glorifying and praising God for everything they had heard and seen. It turned out exactly the way they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, before we uh, dive into Christmas and the message that I believe the angels were really bringing I want to talk to you about a handful of things that, um, maybe just three short things, that I think can help you to experience the peace that we talk about at Christmas all year long. One of them uh, was mentioned, well, two of them were mentioned during the announcements earlier, but I want to highlight them in your thinking because I really have found them to be instruments of God's peace. The first is this, if you find that uh, talking about money or your experience with money stresses you out, there's a better way. And Bob and Janelle Nickel have uh, a couple of times now led different groups in our church through Financial Peace University, and they would be glad to help you with that um, starting uh, January 18th. It's going to meet Friday nights here in the fellowship hall. Okay. Um, second thing is, I know that a lot of people who consider themselves Christians, followers of Jesus, 
uh, struggle when it comes to prayer. When I talk with people one-on-one, a lot of folks feel um, embarrassed that they aren't very good at praying, whatever it means to be, quote, good at praying. Many people feel that when they, when they try to pray, they just feel farther from God because they stumble through this mechanical thing they've been taught about how you're supposed to talk to God, and by the time it's all said and done, their mind has wandered off into wherever and wonder where God is and what part of it he heard. Uh, that class that, that Pam mentioned, I'm going to offer on Wednesday evening, 6.30 to 7.30, and hope that if you are a person who has struggled with prayer, um, that you'll just not be embarrassed about that, and you'll come uh, with the rest of us struggles. Why don't we just do this? If you have struggled with a meaningful prayer life, why don't you just raise your hand? Okay? See, you will not be the only one. You will not be the only one. I'm a prayer struggler, so why don't you come and struggle with me on Wednesday evenings. We'll learn how to struggle through this together. Then I want to talk to you about one more thing that can be an instrument of the Lord's peace in your personal experience. Um, I read a book that came out, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, and uh, unfortunately, uh, it, it kind of burst on the scene with this wave of enthusiasm And then a bunch of Christians, for some reason, decided that, oh, anything that gets that much enthusiasm is probably wrong. And so there was this huge, like, Christian backlash that that happened after this this grand arrival on the scene. How many of you have read the book, The Shack? Okay? Yeah. And then I I won't ask who didn't and, and why you didn't. I've had folks come to my office to talk to me about how bad The Shack is who've never read it. Um... Just don't do that with anything in life, okay? Just don't do that. Uh, I'll tell you this. I was uh, a conscientious objector. Most things that are uh, super Christian usually don't attract me much, and I, I, I kind of push off a little bit. And so I think probably for the first year or two maybe that that book was making its way through the bestseller list, I, I pushed it off and wouldn't read it. And then a dear friend of mine um, gave me a copy of the book. And you know how that goes, right? I mean, let's all be honest. When somebody gives you a book, they didn't give you a gift. They gave you an obligation, right? Because <laughs> now you have to read it. Now you have to read it. And uh, it waits to be seen whether that book was, in fact, a gift, something that, that's really um, helpful or enjoyable to you. So I, really, out of a sense of obligation, I sat down and read this book. And I'm going to tell you today that of all the books I've read, and I've read a pile of them, that book makes easily the top 10 and maybe the top five for me. Not because it was enjoyable, because it really, much of the book isn't enjoyable. But I found that it deeply impacted the way that I experience God whenever I speak to him in prayer. It changed my mind about who he is and how he looks at me. And so uh, Ed Benjamin has experienced that very same thing, but here recently, just having having recently read the book, and it's been so transformative in Ed's experience with God that he and Tina have decided that uh, starting uh, in the new year, they're going to host um, a a small group or a connection group or a a book club, however you want to think about it. And uh, over the course of, uh, it's, you know, the the book's about 20 chapters long. Over the course of about that many weeks, they want to just dive into this book with some people who are interested in reading it or some folks who already have. I'm going to be there for some of those sessions, but I'm also going to be leading a, uh, a prayer study, so I'll miss some of those. But on, based on my personal experience, the, a profoundly, um, that, that book w- profoundly affected me, and here I sit, um, I think seven, eight years, boy, longer than that, eight, nine, ten years ago, I guess, later, um, very, very grateful and it's a source of lasting peace in my life. So I want to recommend that to you. And Ed, next week, will be up here, and we'll talk a little bit more about what you can expect from the book. Well, we watched the, uh, the goofy video of, the, of adults with kid voices, and then we read uh, this, this paraphrase of the Christmas story. You've probably heard it a lot of times. And, and if not, you've driven around and seen enough Christmas lights with a manger and three people standing uh, in it or two people standing and one, one laying in a crib that you get the idea of the Christmas story that happened in antiquity. If you've gone to church much uh, in your life, you've probably also 
uh, heard sermons about the Christmas story that have focused on Mary. You've probably heard sermons that focused on Joseph, probably sermons on Jesus. Hopefully, you've heard some sermons about Jesus <laughs> over the years. You've heard messages about the wise men. You've heard, you've heard prob- the innkeeper. You've probably heard messages about everybody except for some of the livestock, and only some of the livestock, because somebody preached about a donkey one time. I'm not kidding. I heard a Christmas morning donkey sermon one time. You've probably also heard messages about the shepherds, it's, and, and that's where I'm going today, because the shepherd's experience grabbed me as I was preparing for Advent and Christmas this year, partly because... Um, as a kid, I was the lower rent version of a shepherd. You know, what's, you know what's lower on the totem pole than shepherds? Goat herders. And that was us. We had goats when I was a little kid. Um, I, I milked goats twice a day. We, we did all the things that you do to, with, and for goats. And then in, in one fell swoop, I won world champion, world champion, in best slash worst, most amazing vacation story ever because of a goat. Go ahead and tell your cute little vacation stories. And when you're done, I'll tell mine, and it'll be the world champion vacation story you've ever heard, because here it goes. I rode with four other people and a goat in a 1981 Chevy Chevette (laughs) from Richmond, Virginia to Lamar, Missouri in 1981. Thank you. Thank you. I, you know, I wish that the Child Protective Services people had asked that question, why? Because my life would have been a lot different after that. But instead, I ended up as a goat herder. And uh, uh, I herded other things as well. But, but I think I connect with the shepherds partly because of my experience as a kid um, pushing livestock around and being pushed around by livestock. I think I connect with shepherds too because growing up as a little redneck kid in southern Missouri, I had a coon hound. And uh, in those days, people thought it was, you know, completely acceptable to give your, you know, 11, 12-year-old kid a firearm, send him outside at night to wander around in the woods chasing a dog by himself. So I did that too. And so I had a lot of experience as as a little kid outside at night looking up at the stars. The shepherds were, were doing that. Can you imagine what it must have been like on the night that, that was described in the text that I read for you today? I mean, it, in, in one sense, it was just like any other night, right? The, the shepherds are out there. They're losing sleep because they don't want to be losing sheep, right? The, the, the predators that come in the middle of the night and so forth, they're out there. And most nights there are no predators that come because they've really got the sheep with, you know, lookouts here and there and got them kind of surrounded on the hillside. And somebody has to stay awake and maybe a couple of somebodies. But for the most part, most nights are uneventful. You're just trying to make it through the watch when it's your turn. But as we read the story that night, those guys who were expecting nothing, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary suddenly had this incredible experience. They'd been raised in a religious society, a religious culture, and so they'd been told from the time they were little kids that there are these beings called angels. And they had heard some incredible stories of times that angels had shown up reportedly in their nation's history, but they'd never seen one. And no one they knew had ever seen one. And so in that way that many people believe, they kind of believed and kind of hoped and kind of didn't know if angels really exist. Until the night, like the other nights, that they were out on the hillside taking care of sheep, when the text tells us all of a sudden an angel bursts onto the scene I think that's how angels arrive. It's, they're there one second when they weren't before, so that's kind of a, there you are, bursting onto the scene. And, and they tell this incredible message about this long-expected uh, rescuer, this grand fixer that God has specially appointed and specially anointed, specially equipped to come and literally change the world and human society so that our lives and the larger world begins to work right. Everybody wants that. Everybody wants that. But if you hope for that for very long without receiving that, there's something in your soul that begins to kind of 
back off from hope to the place of just, well, maybe wishing, because wishing is different than hoping, to the place that we often find ourselves saying, well, I believe, but it's where the shepherds were. Until the the angel burst on the scene, and when he burst on the scene, he said that message that you've kind of let go of is actually taking place tonight. And that grand fixer that you've sort of believed in, he's been born just a few, few hundred yards from here, so why don't you make your way over there and see what you can find. Now, if you were, like me, a goat herder or a sheep herder, and you're out there on the hillside at night expecting nothing to happen, and an angel shows up, you enter what psychologists call full freak-out mode. Because uh, angels, hello, not to mention the message. But, but, but get this, here's these shepherds, right, out there just doing their thing, and this angel shows up, and before they can re- really get their minds wrapped around this notion of an angel is standing here talking to me, the text says that all of a sudden, thousands more of them show up, and, and as they're, they're coming toward them, they're kind of singing or chanting something. And if you had lived in that day and place and time, that would have looked and sounded very much to you like an advancing army. So your life just went from ordinary to uh, angel to what in the world is that? And you probably move very quickly from the place of wonder to the place of absolute terror until the... Uh, the horde of angels got close enough that you could actually understand what they were saying. And what the angels said that night is really the message of Christmas, and it has two parts. you got to get a hold of this. They said that something's going to happen in heaven and something's going to happen on earth. The thing that would happen in heaven would be the outpouring of glory. Well, duh, God's there. It's a glorious kind of place because he's a glorious kind of being and, and he made this, this opulent setting for himself, right? Glory, yeah. What's, what's the big news about glory in heaven? Well, the angels said that the glory was going to kind of increase, that there was going to be this, this exponential, like, like glory in the highest. Feel that for a moment. However good the presence of God is, However great the abode, the place where God lived, something happened that night that made the off-giving of glory even more glorious, awesome, incredible, and intense. And the thing that produced it was Jesus leaving heaven and coming to earth. How can heaven get more glorious when Jesus leaves? because of what he was coming here to do. It's because of the second part of the message. What was supposed to happen on earth? The angels said this, there's finally going to be peace. I think that message landed about uh, back then about like it did in here. Not one person clapped, not one person applauded, not one person said amen. No cartwheels, no backflips. Nobody... Nobody tweeting, man, there's going to be peace. I think people like the shepherds went, oh, yeah, peace. Because we never really experience it. Peace is the thing that people talk about, but that we don't really experience. I mean, there's this, these moments of when I'm not afraid or I'm not worried. But for the most part, we don't really experience peace. Human beings aren't inherently peaceful beings. We're fighters. Um, anybody watch the news these days? There's war everywhere. You know what we do when we finally end a war? Start another one. Just watch this mess we're in right now. Just wait. We get that one wrapped up. We'll find another one. We'll dive right in. We'll act like it's important and holy and good. We'll, we'll rally the troops and the people and the politicians, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll get after it because that's what we do. We fight. When we're not fighting wars on foreign fields, we fight with our coworkers. We, we fight, the politicians, they fight, right? You, you expecting peace on earth? If you want peace on earth, don't go to the centers of political power. Don't head to the Middle East. You, you, if, you wanna, if you want peace in the Middle East, go ahead and pray for it and wish, but don't hold your breath because it isn't happening in your lifetime. 
Neither is it going to happen in Washington, D.C. We'll get through the next election cycle. The, uh, the parties will beat the living prunes out of each other. And as soon as one of those teams win, you know what they'll do? They'll start planning the next fight. And it's only two years away, so we better start early and get fighting now. We fight with our teammates. We fight with our coworkers. We fight with our families. And then occasionally we have a, a ceasefire where we just stop it for a little bit. But a ceasefire is not at all the same thing as peace. And what the angels came and declared is that it's actually possible for people to experience peace. But I think what they, were, what they were proclaiming that night was not some philosophical peace. It wasn't a hypothetical peace. It wasn't a religious peace. I think what the angels were actually trying to communicate is that because of the coming of this grand fixer into the world, it now would be possible, not just possible, but actually the case that the people who believe in God and have relationship with him would now find it possible and would make the decision to live at peace with their neighbors. Uh, we could talk probably longer than, than would be productive about our nation being at peace with, oh, ISIS. Well, that'd be fun, wouldn't it? Had that conversation, wouldn't that be a fun one? But honestly, I don't even know what that means or what it looks like because from day to day, I live in Idaho. And I just see you guys. Um, peace with China. Maybe we could broker peace with China. Wouldn't that be great? Except from day to day, I couldn't tell whether we were at peace or at war with China because I live in Idaho. And you live in eastern Washington. We just see each other. Starbucks in the grocery store. See, I don't think what the angels came proclaiming was that at some brief moments in history, we will get our lives punctuated by ceasefires uh, between nations. I think what the angels came to proclaim is that God has a deep and abiding desire that flows from his very heart that people can actually live at peace with the people next to them. The people in their house, the people in their classroom, the people at their health club, the people on their job. The brothers and sisters, you can actually have peace. In fact, I think the angels were saying, here's God's Christmas list. You want to get him anything? Get him peace with the people next to you. Do you struggle with anybody? I mean, I, I know that most of you are peaceable people, but, but doesn't every one of us still have a person or two that, that, that we just struggle with? You know, the people in your life who you wish weren't in your life? Come on, be honest, your pastor is. Are there people in your life that you just wish weren't in your life? Don't you, don't you have, uh, have you ever had a coworker that you wished would get a different job in Afghanistan? Don't, don't you wish your boss would get a promotion to retirement or something so you just didn't have to deal with them every day? Do you have a relative? Don't lift your hand and don't look down the aisle, okay? Don't look. <laughs> Do you have a relative that thinks you're difficult to get along with? Um, hi, family, Facebook land. Oh, yeah. All of us have, have some of those people in our lives, right? The, the, those people, the people that we struggle with, we just find, oh, they always say the wrong things. They, we always disagree. Why do they always have to be so? And fill in the blank. You, everybody have some those people in your life? Yeah. Mm. I struggle with some. And here's all it would take for, for me, Cliff, to have peace with those people if they would just change, right? If they would just change then we could live at peace. My life would be so good. All I want for Christmas is for those people to change, right? Well, it's not likely to happen, right? I mean, you've lived all these years with these problem people, those people, and they haven't changed. What's the likelihood that suddenly because you wished for it for Christmas or listened to a sermon about it, that those people are going to change? The chance is not good. 
It's not likely. So what are you supposed to do? Just grit your teeth? Be nice to them? Just keep your mouth shut? Bite your tongue? Um, maybe just do it long enough that you can get away from them and then, you know, your poor spouse drowns in the rant of all of your off-gassing about those people that you've dealt with all day long? Or is there perhaps a better way available to the people of God? I believe that there is. And so this morning, I want to talk to you in the time that I have left about a real pathway to peace with the difficult people in our lives. Uh, the, The pathway, like the Pathway to Peace we talked about a few weeks ago. There's some uphill sections. There's, it's a journey that you're going to have to cover, but you're going to have to make the decision ahead of time that you are going to pursue peace. If you hear nothing else today, hang on to those two words, pursue peace, because peace isn't coming to you. You are going to have to go to it. You are going to have to roll up your sleeves, put on your peace hiking boots, and take some steps to get there. Otherwise, peace is not going to come to you. But you can go down that pathway to peace if you will consider the following. A handful of biblical principles that will guide you as you make everyday decisions, and then a small handful of practices that you can put in place that will, in fact, bring peace to your relationship with other people. And I'll say this, even if they don't change, it's actually possible for you to pursue and lay hands on peace and retain it. So let's talk about some biblical principles first that'll just kind of inform our understanding. Remember, if if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the scriptures hold this authority for us. They not only describe history, but they also prescribe for us beliefs that we then come, humble ourselves before, and believe. Here's a handful of biblical principles for the pursuit of peace. The first is this. You gotta believe that God hates division and loves peace unity. He's not ambivalent about those things. He's not sitting back far removed saying, well, let's see how this dust up uh, finishes up and works out. God is not standing aloof and far removed from human interaction and human conflict. No, God is vitally interested in the interactions between human beings because he considers every human being on this planet to be one of his children. And just like when your kids fight at your house, God the Father is very much aware of and cares about the interactions between his children that are devoid of peace. God hates division and he loves unity. Let's take a look at some uh, passages of Scripture on the screen. The first from Proverbs. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And I left out the first six because this is, a, this is an ancient um, wisdom teaching that lists all kinds of things. But, but look at the first two lines. Six things the Lord hates. Okay, seven th- Are the six things or seven? There's seven, but it tells us that the first six he hates, but the seventh is just the one that sets his teeth on edge. It's the, he, has a, he has a special kind of dislike reserved for the seventh thing. It's worse than the first six. What's the seventh thing? A person who stirs up conflict in the community. Pastor, I didn't start it. She did. Mm-hmm. And then handed you the spoon. You just kept. You know, all fights end. Every fights end when one person decides to quit. Amen. Say it with me. Amen. Yeah. One person can end a conflict by saying, I am not going to live in opposition to you. There are six things the Lord hates. There's another one that's beyond that, a special kind of uh, in the heart of God, and it's a person who stirs up division, whether they did it first or keep it going. How many of you, confession time, have ever said, I don't start fights, I finish them? <laughs> Just me and two other honest people, okay? Yeah. Yeah, the person who finishes them stirs up dissension. Yeah. Let's take a look at that next passage. It describes the other end of the equation. But how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Now get this. For there 
the Lord bestows his blessing. The first thing just says it's enjoyable when people get along instead of fighting. Right. But beyond that, it says that God then takes some action and and takes some of the goodness in which he experiences life and grants it to us. In the first equation, God gets involved in the conflict because it says that he hates and detests conflict to the place that at some point he'll pronounce judgment upon it or push it away from his presence. But the same token, God gets involved and active whenever people practice peace. And he will add to the goodness that you already experience by friendship and by love. He will add to that his personal blessing, some goodness from God that's extra on the top. If you're going to walk the pathway to peace, you first have to believe that God hates division and that he loves unity. You also have to believe that peace is your responsibility. Is it the other person's? Yeah, but what can I do about another person's responsibilities in this world? Absolutely no thing. I have a responsibility to live in peace and to restore peace whenever it is interrupted between me and another person. Yeah, but the conflict is because of what they said or did. They need to come and apologize to me. Right. I mean, I get it. Except sometimes people don't ever do that. And if you want to have peace, you're going to have to pursue it. You're going to have to be the person who then takes it upon yourself to do the work of reconciling and restoring a relationship. You're going to have to pursue peace with the other person because scriptures do teach us that it is, in fact, no matter whose fault it was, there is a responsibility that we take upon ourselves as the followers of Jesus to pursue peace with others. Christ follower, this is for you. Take a look at Romans chapter 12. Live in harmony with one another. For uh, you grammar folks, um, this thing is written, uh, boy, I'm going to forget the, the name for the verb voice. This is written, um, yeah, I won't remember it now. It's written as a command, okay? Live in harmony with one another. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I think this verse acknowledges for us. I can't make other people act certain ways, but as much as it depends on me, I am going to take the actions of peace that will either keep peace or restore peace. And it comes to us as a command. um, Live in harmony with one another, and if it's possible, and listen, it's usually possible if I work a little bit longer and a little bit harder. Peace is our responsibility. A handful of things, uh, scriptural principles that that mark the way on the path to peace. First, that God hates division and loves unity. Second, that peace is our responsibility. And the third is this, peace begins with viewing people differently. If If you want peace instead of conflict, you've got to learn to look at people differently than you currently see them. Laura, I'm gonna tell a story on you. I didn't think to ask you about this before, but you've shared this in a number of contexts, okay? Would you just scoot over to that young guy who's sitting next to you and put your arm around him for a minute? Our son, Noah, right there. Welcome home, Noah. Yeah, yay, it's good. Faith. Faith's home, too. Good morning, Faith. But this story is not about you, so as you were, okay? (laughs) Noah was wound tight as a little guy. He was a lot for a first-time mom and a first-time dad who worked too much. And um, he had little siblings that, you know, he could pick on. And, um, and he just had that boyish thing about just kind of half-liking the business of being in trouble. Admit it, right, bud? You always kind of half-like that. Yep, yep. <laughs> Laura, at one point, when she had this house full of little kids and one who was just jacked with energy all the time and was a little bit mischievous, was really struggling. And uh, one day, she had just had enough of Noah. He was on spanking number 39 or something that day. And uh, Laura was ready to just throw up her hands. She did not know what to do. And so she prayed this prayer, Lord, would you help me 
to see him like you do. And as my wife has told that story to me and to other groups on a number of occasions, it wasn't but seconds until the anger and the frustration in her heart melted into compassion and love. And she suddenly saw not a little boy who was, quote, being bad, but a little boy who was being a little boy. She saw him through different eyes, and instantly the opposition between the two of them went away. Interestingly, Noah was still running around the house at 9 million miles an hour and poking people in the eye. But see, Noah didn't have to change in order for Laura to have peace. It came when she asked God, will you help me to see somebody through your eyes? Friends, I'm telling you, as sure as I know anything in this life, if you will begin to pray about the people that you have the most difficult time with, if you will pray, Lord, don't forget about them and their character. If you pray, Lord, help me to see them like you do, he will answer your prayer. He will answer your prayer, and he will change your heart and what it experiences as you pursue peace. But here's, how you, uh, here's what this, this business of seeing people through God's eyes looks like. You see, human beings, all of them, every single one of them, is created in the image of God. What is the image of God? Uh, is, is, is God 5'9", five, 5'10", five, dark hair and dark eyes? That's not what we mean by the, by the image of God, or else he might also be six foot four, blonde hair and blue eyes, and we don't know. No, human beings are like God, created like him in some essential way that makes us God-like in essence, and as we pursue relationship with him, we become godly in our character. So there's this original blueprint, this, 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 this DNA stamp on us that makes us like God. And if you believe that, if you really believe that, you look at people very differently. Because instead of them being some child of hell or some enemy, they're like the God I love. And they're like me. See, people bear the image of God, even ugly people. Not ugly, ha-ha, but the people who are ugliest to you, who treat you the worst, they too have that DNA stamp, that, that, that the thing on their soul, in their soul, the very essence of their soul that is like God. And if you actually will submit to the scriptural teaching, if you'll actually decide that you will embrace the truth that all people are created in the image of God, you will suddenly have a near reverence for the person next to you, even when they're kind of difficult to deal with. You will come to believe in their basic dignity and something in your heart will be moved to treat them differently than when you hated them. I mean, good Christians don't hate, right? Hmm. Take a look at this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says, God created mankind in his own image. In case you didn't get it, he says it again. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. All of the men, all of the women, they are like God. And we should view them as such. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 and uh, 16, just kind of put those together. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Do not be proud. Do not be conceited. This verse teaches us that sometimes I am the ugly people. Hmm? All, all people bear the image of God, even the ugly people. Guess what? Sometimes I am the ugly people. It's important that as I'm thinking about the, those people, the folks that are so difficult to deal with, I must, I must humbly admit that at times I'm the difficult one. Aren't we? Come on, aren't we? Yeah. Hmm. See, if you come to believe that human beings are created in the image of God, all of them, and to the same extent that you and I are, then all of a sudden we begin to see the other person as my equal, not my enemy. Did you hear that? Because it's important. It might be the most important thing today. If you come to understand and really believe that people are created in the image of God, suddenly those people are my equals, not my enemies. Hmm. Well, that changes the thing altogether. Handful of principles. Hang on to those. 
Now let's get down to the practices because this is where peace really ends up showing up, where it really comes into our lives. You ready for this? Handful of them. The first is this. Whenever you have conflict with another person, they end up making the category of those people that are hard to deal with. Know this. Proverbs 19.11 teaches us that the very best thing you can do is this. You can decide to overlook an offense. Check this out. Romans, or sorry, Proverbs 19.11. A person's wisdom yields or produces patience. And it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. The first half of this proverb says, if you will practice patience and ask God to help you with, uh, with that, it will be the very wisdom of God that flows into your life. And it is fools who do not pray for patience. Listen, no matter how many times you've heard Christians say, oh, don't pray for patience, God will give you an opportunity to experience it. I think I've said that from the pulpit several times. So when I use my dumb guy voice, it's me, okay? That's foolishness. That's foolishness. The wisdom of God says, be patient and seek it from him. And as he's administering patience in your life, you, will, you can find an opportunity to make a decision, to overlook the wrong things that others have done to you. Listen, somebody needs to get a hold of this today. You've been holding on to a long list of all the things that he did to you or she did to you or they did to you. And the wisdom of God says, turn loose of it and decide to just, instead of looking at the offense, looking at them through the, the, the red and of, of your anger, you can... You can rise up and look over the top of the offenses to see the person. He's created in the image of God. That word glory is important because glory is a word. Remember the angels when they announced it? When they announced that Jesus was coming, they said there's going to be all kinds of extreme glory in heaven because of what Jesus does. And glory is this exclusive property of God. Except For the writer of the Proverbs said, humans become glorious. They they, they share in the glory of God when they decide to overlook offenses instead of keeping track of them or making the other person apologize. Listen, that's God's truth that's going to set somebody free today if you'll decide to overlook an offense. Practice number one, decide to overlook an offense. What about the really severe ones? What about the really severe ones? Friends, listen. If you are waiting to get justice in this life, you may wait an entire lifetime. If you're waiting for an apology, it may never come. If you're waiting for the courts to settle it, they may just keep filing. Plus, we've all seen how court verdicts go, right? Do they always bring justice? No, no. But you can overlook an offense, and it is no more. Second practice. What if, what if, Cliff, what if in my weakness and frailty, I try, but I just, I I can't let go of it. I, I can't overlook it. I can't just dismiss it. What then? Well, then you have the hard work to do, but this is possible. You can decide to forgive. Forgiveness is different than overlooking an offense. Overlooking is going, that one isn't even important enough to let it register. Just don't take offense at that. Forgiveness is what happens when I have already taken offense, and now I've taken that hurt to my heart, and I have a difficult job now to do in deciding that, I'm no longer going to hold on to the throat of the person before me. You know that definition. Have I shared that with you before? The definition of forgiveness is the day that you decide you can let go of their throat. The way this usually happens when somebody offends us and we take the offense to ourselves, we do this. We grab them by the throat. And you may squeeze really hard and this becomes a big conflict. Or you may be a person that goes, no, 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 no. I'm not squeezing today. I just reserve the right to in the future. So I always view that person as though I've got them right there by the throat. 
And I take a little bit of joy in knowing that the day that I decide, and they're going to feel it. And forgiveness is the day that I decide that this aching shoulder and throbbing arm of mine would be much better at my side or around them. Forgiveness is the day that you let go of the other person's throat, whether you've been choking them or waiting for the day that you could. But if you can't overlook an offense and you've already taken it to yourself, the scriptures teach us that it is possible, in fact, to forgive other human beings. It's just usually, because of how we are, it's usually going to take the help of God himself. But listen, you've prayed a lot of prayers that you don't know whether, whether God wanted to answer them. Because you didn't know how smart they were. You didn't know how wise they were. You didn't know how holy your requests were. Listen, this one, money every single time. Money every single time. When you go to God and say, will you help me forgive? He's already invested in it. He's invested everything he's got in forgiveness. His own son, the life of his own child. He invested in forgiveness. Everyone, everyone, everyone who says, Lord, help forgive, will receive the help that they need. All it takes is a willing heart. And if you don't have a willing heart, start praying for a willing heart, because God, he's, he's a practical booger. He'll help you get your uh, motives squared away before you get around to acting on them. It's also the case, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, if you need a little help with the motive behind forgiving others, Jesus said, if you forgive others, you'll be forgiven by my heavenly Father. And if you do not, you will not, period. Just take that for what it's worth, the words of Jesus Christ himself. Practice number three is this. You, you really have to take a look at the list of offenses and the one that maybe you're tripping over today and ask yourself, is this a forgiveness issue or just a bear with one another issue? Okay, forgiveness is when actual sin, actual harm and wrongdoing has taken place. Sometimes those people aren't people who've sinned against us. They're just annoying. They're just people who, who you know, um, talk with their mouth full. They're, they're people who smell funny. They're people whose sense of humor isn't all that funny. They're people whose politics differ from mine because of their obvious ignorance. (laughs) There's nothing to forgive in those situations. But the scriptures teach us in Ephesians chapter 4, bear with one another in love. Listen, there's some good meaty truth there for some people today. You've been telling yourself, I've been wronged. They've sinned against me. No, they're just annoying. And you, follower of Jesus, have the opportunity to to learn to bear with people. Trust me, they're bearing with you. They came and saw me and told me about it. I think that one set some people free today, too. If you, if you suddenly realize this isn't such a great big thing that I thought it was, this, this uh, between me and them, it really wasn't worth holding on to because it's really just a shrug and bear with them. They're always going to be a little odd. They're always going to be a little rough. They're always going to be a little annoying, but they're, they're made in the image of God. I can bear with them. Next one's this, and this, I think, really is the uh, toughest um, the toughest. Being, uh, you know, uh, practice on the list. Here you go. Pray for those people. Now listen to me, because uh, there's one little word in there that's really, really important, and it's not pray. It's for. Pray for those people. Oh, I pray for those people all the time. I pray for them to uh, get their hearts right. I pray that they'll see the light. I pray that they'll come to their senses. I pray that they'll become reasonable. I pray that they will reap what they have sown. Anything that comes with this head nod means your heart is full of you, right? No, no, no. Pray for those people. As Jesus put it, your enemies. Pray for them. Here's what this means. It means pray that something good happens for them. 
not what you think they ought to be doing or some, you know what would be a good thing? Pray that they learn a really hard lesson. There's no generosity of spirit in that, folks. Come on. Praying for people means that we don't, we don't pray against them. We don't pray about them. Because praying against them is, you know, asking God to smite them. You know, God, please, you know, pour out your wrath. That doesn't work. That's just my heart filling up with revenge and asking God to bear my grudges. You know? it, it, it's also not praying about them. Oh, God, listen to my prayer for the 393rd day in a row about what an idiot my uncle is. Oh, Lord, my boss is such a loser. Please get... That's not praying for anyone. And praying about people is usually whining. Can I get an amen from all of the whiners? Yeah, yeah. How how much of our prayer life has really just been us whining to God? Huh? Cliff Purcell needs to grow up a little bit when it comes to praying about people. What Jesus taught us was pray for them, for them, like you're for them, as though you were actually for them, not against them. Get on their side of the table. Look at this situation through their eyes and ask God for the things that they want and need. There's a, I didn't, look, I didn't put, the, put it on the screen, but there's a passage in Proverbs that says, pray for your enemies and it will heap burning coals on their head. I can't tell you how many times I have looked at that and went, well, I'll, I'll pray for them if it'll light their heads on fire. But, but it, that isn't what the proverb is teaching. What the proverb is teaching is that um, we could test this if you'd like, but if your hair gets lit on fire, you will do something. You'll do something very different than what you're doing right now. You will get up and move around quickly. You will find water, blanket, something. You will, you'll lose your mind and run around frantically. But we know this. When your head catches on fire, you will do something differently than you're doing right now. This proverb teaches us that if I pray for someone who I I view as those people, there's something that takes place that's like unto putting fire on their heads. In other words, God will help to bring about some change. But you got to get this. The heaping coals principle, it's two-way street. Because if you, in earnest, start praying about another person, God will heap burning coals on your head. Not judgment, not pain. I'm just saying God is going to stir something up in your heart that causes you to do life differently. You know, it's possible that some of that conflict is because of you and how you react to the annoying people. Think that's possible? Yeah. The burning coals thing, um, it's, I'm sure it's in the footnote. It'll heap burning coals on their head and on mine when I pray for my enemies. Pray for your enemies, not about your enemies, because that's whining, not against your enemies, because that's just revenge. But when you pray for people, know this, it will change your heart, and sometimes theirs, sometimes theirs, only sometimes theirs, but always yours and mine. As you begin to pray for somebody, it becomes impossible to continue to hate them. Oh, I didn't hate them, pastor. Okay, whatever that word is that you want to put in there for how um, much you dislike them, know this, that as you commit yourself to a lifestyle of praying for people with whom you struggle, God will change your heart and sometimes theirs. But we'll leave the changing of their hearts to them and to God and understand that I will continue to pray in the hopes that the God that I talk to every day will slowly change and shape my heart, so that it becomes more like his. Because you know how he views me? I mean, Romans says that I was once his enemy. And that while I was his enemy, Christ died for me. If I continue to pray for those that I have difficulty with, God will shape my heart to be like his own. And every time he looks at a sinner, he loves them. And every time he looks at somebody who's difficult, he bears with them. And every time they do something, eh, he does his best to just overlook it. And if he can't overlook it because of its severity, because of a real wound that struck, he does make the decision to do the hard work of forgiving. Last thing on the list, don't leave this one off. It's really important. If you want to pursue peace, 
you're going to have to change the way that you talk about those people. Because changing the way that you talk will change the way that you think. It's not the other way around. When I finally feel different, I'll start talking well of them. Mm -mm. It's the other way around. Our feelings almost always follow our faith. Hear that? Our feelings almost always follow our faith. It takes a while for them to catch up. So what I have to do is I have to start walking the path to peace. I have to start pursuing it, and in due time, I'll get a chance to experience it. But in Romans 12, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff there this morning that we've read. Romans 12, 14 says, bless and do not curse. Um, It's not talking about cuss words, and it's not talking about witchcraft necessarily. Please don't call down like witchcraft curses on people, okay? Um, or, or use foul language to describe them. That doesn't fit with the people of God, right? Okay, th- th- those are the obvious things. Curse just talks about um, using our mouths in such a way that at, at best it's a waste and at worst it degrades another human being. John Wesley is one of those guys, uh, one of our theological forebears, uh, an English reformer who lived in the 1700s. He said... Um, he wrote this, this awesome sermon. If you want to read it, it'll, it'll make your lunch quieter, I'll tell you that. It's called The Cure of Evil Speaking. And it's kind of hard to read because, you know, it's English from 250 years ago. But in, in this, this sermon, Wesley says, here's a, he was the father of the Methodists, okay? So he had a method or a rule for everything. He said, here's the rule in this uh, evil speaking thing. He said, the rule is to say anything negative about another human being in their absence, true or not, is sin. To say anything negative about another person if they're not there to defend themselves, doesn't matter whether it's true or not. For you, it's sin. So he taught his, uh, his first disciples, just don't say, just don't talk trash about people. If you've got trash, you're going to need to say it to them. But you should probably not do it in a way that it comes across as talking trash to them or you're the one who's stirring up the dissension and God hates that, right? When we talk about people, it shapes what we believe about them and it shapes the way that we feel about them. Listen, Christians, much of our annoyance with those people is because we've been running our mouths far too long about their character flaws and about little mistakes that they made a long time ago that I've talked into great big proportions. Nod your heads with me if you think that might be right. Yeah. But if we started, if we started speaking peaceably, if we started being kind in the way that we described other people, we'd we'd start believing it. And we'd start experiencing it. And all of a sudden, you wouldn't be experiencing annoyance. You'd be experiencing love. What do you think God tells his buddies about you? He's got buddies, you know. When the subject of you comes up, what do you think God says? Runs off the list of sins, but I forgave him anyway, that I'll never forget. He's an idiot, but, you know, he's family, so. Or do you think that when God is talking to his buddies about you, he's saying, that's my girl. She's precious to me. That's my boy. Man, I love him. He's on his way. He's growing. He's changing. You're not going to believe what he's going to become one day. And because of that, feel this, the, the, the faith of God in you builds and shapes the way that he treats you. And you're like God. And if you will change the way that you talk about those people, you will very soon change what you believe about those people and what you experience from those people. And you'll quit calling them those people because they're us when we love them. Those people are us when we love them. That little baby, 
Over 2,000 years ago. Came as the, 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 the seed of a great harvest that God intends to reap one day. And that harvest, when it's fully mature, will be you and me and all the other followers of Jesus living at peace with one another and with the world around us. Governments will still fight. Political parties still will. Probably ethnic groups. Not the people of God. The people of God live at peace with one another. It's why Jesus came. That we might have peace with God and with one another. Will you pursue it with me? There's a handful of biblical principles. Will you believe them? There's a handful of practices. Will you begin to try them? I'm telling you, God will honor your trying and he will speed up the process at which you can uh, expect to experience his peace because he's good. Why don't you stand with me? Lord, we want to pause before you right now and ask, who's the first person with whom I need to pursue peace? I mean, really pursue it we listen for your voice, believing that uh, you don't stutter, believing that you're not a jerk, so you answer prayers like when we ask, who do you want me to make peace with? We're just going to accept that first name that came to mind. Lord, would you help us to really believe that that person bears your image as much as I do? Would you help me to see him with your eyes the way mamas can see their little ones? Would you help me to take these, these first steps in the direction of peace? Maybe, maybe we just need to get over it, let go of something, overlook an offense. Maybe the pain's already struck too deep and we've nursed that wound too long. Would you help us to forgive? Father, help us. We want to forgive. Would you help us to not make big things out of little things? Just bear with one another in love. Would you help us to follow through on one of your toughest teachings ever, Jesus? pray for those people and how about you help us from here till we lay our heads on our pillows tonight to not talk badly about people and we'll get one whole day in a row that way tomorrow we can start on another God we want to see you get all the things that were on your Christmas list so we say to you glory in the highest you are worthy of all of our praise, our thanksgiving, and our love.